No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. He's been covering sports as a newspaper man for nearly 70 years And he is still at it, one of the legendary figures in the annals of sports journalism, sports writing, sports reporting. And he was just enshrined in his 16th Hall of Fame. In some ways, this might be the most meaningful of them all, the New Jersey Hall of Fame, because he is the quintessential, the consummate Garden Stater. It is a pleasure to welcome back to the sporting life, the one, the only, Jerry Eisenberg. Well, it's very kind of you. You understated it a little bit, but that's very kind. <laughs> would you Would you like me to pile it on some more, Jerry? No, would, no, would that no. make come you on, happy? I, come on, I know the truth about it. Let it go. Now, 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 Jerry. In, in all seriousness, in the New Jersey Hall of Fame—that's uh, a big deal. You know, you're a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, for instance, I happen to know that James J. Braddock, who was only the heavyweight champion of the world, is yeah. not in the New Jersey Hall of Fame, but you are now a member of the Hall of Fame along with. Frank Sinatra and Buzz Aldrin and all yeah. the other greats. Uh, what did this honor mean to you after having been honored in so many different ways by so many different organizations? Well, I'll tell you, they asked me to write a piece in the paper, which I did a long piece about what it means to me. And I remarked that my first memory of New Jersey uh, was in Beth Israel Hospital on September 10th, 1930. A doctor with very cold hands. Beth Israel, Newark. Yes, I was there just uh, a few months ago for Matt Millen. That's where he got his heart transplant. Well, okay. So that uh, doctor with very cold hands turned me upside down, whacked me on the ass, and said, you're in New Jersey, kid. Learn to survive. (laughs) Best advice I ever got. (laughs) I'm sorry. I almost stepped on the punchline, Jerry, but not quite. I apologize. Uh, I'm used to that. We've been doing this for a long time. I keep stepping on the punchlines. Yeah, that's all right. As long as I don't trip. (laughs) Now, and I should say, and I don't want to embarrass you here, but you know, your career um, is a testament not only to your uh, literary sensibility, your journalistic instincts, um, your unerring sense of fairness in what really matters, um, uh, but also just to your your determination to to keep doing it when when everybody else, pretty much from your generation, either. Uh, um, you know, is no longer with us, I hate to right. say, or, or retired. What keeps you going, still writing? What, what are you now? The greatest fuel in the world, venom. <laughs> You're not a venomous for, person, yes. Jerry. Oh, yeah, you don't know me. You're very nice, Jerry. Jeremy. You haven't seen the evil side of me. But I will tell you this. I am so angry about the destruction of the English language. Oh. Because as I, I used to teach at, at Rutgers in Newark, I wouldn't teach at the other place, and also at the New School. Wait, wait, and, what do you have, what have you got against the Piscataway campus or the New Brunswick campus? Uh, I don't understand. They're, they're, they're the, uh, they, they are the self-built upper crust. Okay. The Newark campus, when I went to school, was not a campus. I, I went to school in an abandoned razor bla- uh, uh, brewery, hmm. and uh, there was no campus. It was, Rutgers had taken Newark University over like four years earlier, and I got the best education I could. Everybody in school had a job. I worked 40 hours a week at night, 
in a chemical plant for three years ago. Um, you got to remember, I was born in 1930. And in those days, if you were born in 1930, your father said, you're going to college, you went. Of course, he didn't give me two quarters, but I had to go. Right. So that was the deal there. But I, 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 I was going to say, I used to tell my students, you know, every day, English is the greatest language in the world. They talk about the lyrical uh, qualities of Italian. They talk about Spanish with the gestures and stuff like that, and French with the subdued and, and, and inferences. English is the best language in the world. And I told them, every day, you kids leave it torn and battled and bleeding on the battlefield, and the next day they get up to fight again. <laughs> and that's one of my one of my real... I'm tired of people saying, well, you know, you use biblical references. I don't know what they are. Well, they either get religion or get a dictionary, one or the other. I'm you. I'm not going to, you know. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to have to bleep that. Yeah, so it's on you it. and not me. No, it's, I, I'm it's me. Not, you yeah, do whatever you're you want. You're 89. You can do whatever you want. We're speaking with the one and only Jerry Eisenberg, the longtime, and I mean longtime sports <laughs> columnist, the star ledger of Newark. Uh, you know, those really in the know would never say the Newark star ledger. It's the star ledger it. of Newark. Uh, and Jerry, when I think of the the scope, the arc of your career, it, it's not just about that appreciation and mastery of the English language, but it is about that that um, instinct for the big story, for um, being ahead of the curve, for not being a follower. Uh, whether you know we're talking about um, breaking the color line in the American League, the way uh, you know you covered your friend Larry Doby. Uh, obviously, you were still in college when he broke the color line in 1948 in the American I, League. I, I was. Uh... Uh, I was, yes, but I was working for the paper then, too. Now, you talked about your appreciation of the English language, um, and I know that much of it came from one of your first bosses, the legendary Stanley Woodward, who had been at the Herald Tribune and then at the Star-Ledger. When I was starting off in this business, my dad gave me Sports Page, Woodward's book. You got the real thing, the man in person. What kind of an influence did he have on you? Everything. Everything. I'll tell you something. He also went back to the Tribune in, you know, in Triumph, right. and he took me with him from Newark for three years. And then I left and went home. But I, I will tell you, the greatest experience of my life, here's a guy, a sports editor, who had seven years, with four and three, of Latin and Greek in college, who played football when he was legally blind for four years. Amherst or Williams? I can't remember. Uh, he uh, I think Williams. Uh, no, it wasn't Williams, but I'm not even sure it was Amherst. But, oh, really? but he I played, I, I, whoever it was, it was a compliment to his education. And I asked him one day, Stanley, you, you could hardly see the guy in front of you those years. He, you got, he got an operation and somewhat healed. And I said, yeah, how did you survive? He said, oh, I got a softball catcher's mask, put electrician tape all around it. And wore it. I said, geez, a guy could break his hand on that. He said, yeah, couldn't he? That was my Stanley. <laughs> Stanley Woodward once called me home from my first spring training. I was so friggin' important. And, oh, I'm going to go to spring training. And my dad, a minor league ball player, I was going to cover the Giants where he never got. And, and he was happy, and I was happy, and I got out there. I was out there three days, the phone rings. He said, uh, I want to see you the day after tomorrow in my office. I said, well, I'm not done yet. He said, you're done if you don't come in. <laughs> so I didn't know what the hell I did. I flew in, 
he walked in, he, he sat down, he said, all right, now, who's going to play third base, for, uh, first base for the Giants? Third base, second base, I'm sorry, I got it right now. Who's going to play second base? I said, well, we don't know any seven candidates. It's a really good question. He said, I know the question. I'm asking you for the answer. And I said, well, I don't know yet. There's spring trains like that. He said, listen, I don't give a damn that the Giants are training within nine miles of the Lost Dutchman's mine. I don't give a damn about the sunset in the, in the desert. Stop writing that crap. Don't you, you just go sit on a desk, and I'll tell you when I think you're able to write again. He kept me there for three months. I never forgot it. And then, I, you know, I just surrendered. And then one day, I came into work, and he said to me, how do you like a new assignment? I said, what new assignment? He said, well, uh, I, I like uh, the fact that I have given you college basketball. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, go look at it. So I look at that. We used to be posting all the time. And I said, wow. I said, you know, I can't thank you enough saying, but I do have a question. He said, what's your question? Well, you didn't say, well, you say it's college basketball. You don't say what they want me to do or whatever. He said, look, I hire people because I think they will know what to do. Hmm. And if they can't know what to do, then I get rid of them. Now, if you don't like it, no, Stanley, I'll be glad to do it. Uh, he said, let me tell you something going in so you don't ask this question again. I have great contempt for any game where grown men wear short pants and are not allowed to hit each other. Now you go cover basketball. <laughs> Stanley Woodward, I looked it up, Jerry, by the way, was an Amherst graduate. Just and I knew it was another school. Oh, you were, you were right. Just, just for e- right Either now. way, though, he was, uh, well, I knew, people look me up all the time, and once in a while they catch me. But I, I really, uh, Stanley <laughs> taught me everything. You know what Stan, one of the things Stanley taught me? When not to write. Hmm. You look at the Internet today, you think anybody has ever been exposed to that? Oh, I got to get FaceTime. I got to get the story. I got to get, and it, oh, well, it, everybody files now fifteen times a day. That's it. And somebody said to me, and I won't embarrass him by saying, "You never use Nexus. You know, you never check on the past. You could save yourself a lot of time." I said, "Let me tell you something. If what happens if you make a mistake on the internet?" He said, "Well, I don't know. Well, I know it lives forever. So I don't intend to quote you later on when you were wrong all the time." So forget it. I do my own work. We're speaking to Jerry Eisenberg, who this week was enshrined in the New Jersey Hall of Fame, one of the legendary figures from the world of sports writing over the course of the last 70 years. And Jerry, it's uh, serendipitous in a way that we were, we are speaking today, October 30th, 2019, 45 years to the you day after one of the most consequential events ever in sports you were there on the banks of the congo river in kinshasa then at the time known as zaire now congo um looking back 45 years later to that epic victory for muhammad ali what's what sticks with you well one thing really i'll tell you in a minute but one thing about it i didn't care who was fighting there i was going to go because the ring was pitched about five miles from where Stanley met Livingston, and that's and that. If you want to really, write, I didn't it, realize it was that. I didn't realize it was in in near Kinshasa. That it was right there, close to the Atlantic. I I, I figured it was somewhere deeper in the continent. But you would, it, you would it, know. No, no, it, they were. It wasn't the, the ocean. He didn't find him on the ocean. He found him on a river. 
No, no, I'm just saying I thought they were hundreds of miles from the No, 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 the Congo River. Oh, right there. Which then was called the Zaire River in the battle for authenticity by the dictator, uh, Mobutu Sese Seko. But, you know, for me, it was a a life-changing experience in many ways. Um, I I was back from the Korean War and uh, many years back, in fact. But I saw something there when... Ali comes up to me one day and he says, you want to go? I'm going to meet Mabuto. You want to come with me? So, of course. So we're at the bottom of a hill. And these naked kids are running around with their bellies almost touching their knees. The sign of starvation. And we walk up that hill and suddenly we're in Xanadu. Mm. Three gold leopard cages. The leopard is a national symbol. With three leopards stalking it around in them. Three guys with Tommy guns leading the way from Mobutu. And afterwards, when we went down again and got back to where the kids were with the bellies, I said, this is unfortunately too much of the world today. We just went from the wealthiest guy in Africa to the poorest people in Africa. And that really struck me. Then the people, and strange things happened. I, I made a vow. I was not going to eat monkey. We were in a in a military prison called Aunt Sally. Not a prison, a compound, but it was military. And behind us, there's barbed wire on three sides, and behind us is the Congo River. And these logs are floating up and down. And every once in a while, one of the logs opens its mouth. So you ain't going nowhere as they don't want you to go. And I look at this, and we're totally isolated. Our stuff is all, they try to censor everything we wrote. Um, uh, it, it was very tough. One day, uh, well, it, the adventure began for me sitting in front of the UN Plaza with a person named Shimpupu Shimpupu, who was the information director for the fight for the government of Zaire. And he said, "You come to Zaire, you will see, like New York, all all the hotels, like the Waldorf. Yeah, we were in a hotel with barbed wire, right? The 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 food's fantastic." And I recall going to eat in downtown Kinshasa with Angelo Dundee, who had been picked up a, a, a restaurant recommendation from an Italian construction worker there. Mm-hmm. We go down there, and he's scraping on this bone, and the bone is very strangely shaped. And I said, Angelo, he's eating, and he said, it's pretty good. I don't know what it is. I said, look closer. It's a monkey skull. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the end of dinner for me. And all this, I can understand the, that sentiment. Oh, but the biggest thing is, of course, the fight. Ali gets off the plane. He's with Gene Kilroy, a really close friend of mine who happens to live out in Vegas. And and Gene, uh, he says to Gene, he's standing on the, you know, he's going down to the tarmac, and there's 3,000 people waiting for him. And he says, who don't these people like? And Gene says, well, I could have said white men. I'm white, but I didn't want to say it. I said, the Belgians, because they put dogs on them and everything else. Ali says, thank you. Raises his hands. The crowd quiets. And he said, I hereby pronounce the fact that George Foreman is a Belgian. They go nuts. They follow him around Kinshasa. Ali, which means Ali, kill him. And he's leading the chance. And really, that was 50% of the battle against Foreman. He got... So he occupied Foreman's head so much 
There was room for nothing else in it. Foreman, who is a good friend of mine too now, later admitted that. So now he's in the gym. And he's walking around, he's, you know, he's sparred, and he's walking around with the microphone, he's got a gym. I think the adjective is Zywar, but there were local uh, local natives, mm-hmm. um, and obviously they were black. And he's got the microphone, he's got his bathrobe on, he's walking around, he's saying, you know, he said, I know you people got a bad deal from the Belgians. The people, yeah, 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 we did. And they used to put dogs on you, right? Yeah, they did, they did that. Okay, did you see when he got off the plane? He had a dog with him. Mm-hmm. That dog was a Belgian shepherd. They went wild. He, he he declared him white, and they all nodded their heads in agreement. Um, he Then, right before the fight, uh, I know I'll tell you that, and also, I was part of the greatest role reversal in sports history. I would not eat the monkey meat. I would eat the powdered eggs, but that was it for me. Mm-hmm. So every afternoon, we were in different villas. They called them villas. They were like two-room apartments uh, scattered around uh, the, the uh, compound here. I'd knock on Allie's door, and I'd say, he'd come to the door and say, hey, I'd say, hey, boss, you got any table scraps left over? Because I knew he was getting steaks from Chicago, and uh, that was the greatest role reversal in history. I was asking him for food. It was... Uh... Uh, it was a remarkable fight. I think, what, what was the opening bell? Was it three in the morning? Something like four. that? Four. Four in the morning. He actually went on at four. Four in the morning, ending, of course, with that unexpected knockout. A lot of people thought that Ali might be killed in the fight. What was your prediction pre-fight? Two people picked Ali to win. Both of them picked him to win by knockout. One was Jerry Lister, the sports editor of the London Sun and later the New York Post. And the other was Jerry Eisenberg. And I'm going to tell you how it happened if you've got enough time. You only got a minute, Jerry. All right. We go to the gym. He hasn't hit the heavy bag for two years. He's got arthritis in his, arthritis in his fingers. I didn't know. Kilroy took him to Philadelphia to a hospital, and they told him no more shots, nothing, paraffin baths. It's hot. He's coming. It won't cure it, but you'll be able to punch. Now we walk in, and he's hitting a heavy bag. I can't believe it. And he says, I'm going to knock that sucker out. And I said, Muhammad, are you, what happened? And he explains it to me. We're leaving, and Jerry says, what do you think? Let me tell you something. He once said to me, if I tell you a mosquito can pull a plow, don't argue with me. Hitch him up. I'm making my star to him. We each pick him for a ninth-round knockout. I think it was the eighth. Just one of the moments in Jerry Eisenberg's career that have made him uh, such a legendary figure, predicting that Muhammad Ali would knock out the heavyweight champion of the world, George Foreman, in 1974, 45 years ago today. Now Jerry's in the New Jersey Hall of Fame and 15 other Halls of Fame. Jerry, it's been good catching up. Thank you so much for joining us again here on The Sporting Life. Yeah, and I just want to say one quick sentence. I think about your dad all the time. Oh, and nice he, I know he's smiling, and I hope my dad's smiling at me.